Obvious City, where we will delve into the people, places and events from the history of the greatest capital city in the world and our home, London. I'm Satu. And I'm PJ. And we are your hosts on this journey to discover the lesser known history of London. Today we're going to talk about a British icon of punk, an activist and fashion designer by the name of Vivian Westwood. Westwood may not have been born in London, but her life and her work are inextricably linked to our capital city. We're only going to go back as far as the 1970s today. Modern episode. Yeah, I know. Cutting edge stuff from us here. To when London was at the epicentre of the punk movement. We're going to follow Westwood's journey from a humble start as an impoverished clothes maker in the early 70s up to her split from her romantic and creative partner, Malcolm McLaren, by which time her aesthetic had defined punk and the London look. Now, a word of warning here, this episode does contain some adult words and some adult themes, <laughs> so it's probably not going to be suitable for kids. So come along with us as we journey back to London in the 1970s to discover Vivian Westwood and punk. Vivian Swire, as she was known then, not Westwood, was born on the 8th of April 1941, up north in a village called Tintwistle, which was between Sheffield and Manchester. That sounds like a autumnal BBC drama. Absolutely, Midsummer Murder. Tint town. whistle to Sheffield and back. On the same night down south, London suffered its heaviest raid of the whole of the Blitz. Vivian was the first of a few children of her working class parents who decided to move to London for the chance of better opportunities in 1957 when Vivian was 16 years old. The Swire family took over the post office in Harrow in North London. And while Vivian was a precocious teenager... Who isn't? <laughs> hey, don't, don't do yourself down. I believe that there were some theatrics in your youth. Literally at theatre club, not because I was playing out You weren't in like any changing way. the world in no, any way. definitely not. So she was smart. The beginnings of her life in London seem incredibly normal, actually. And in 1961, when she was still very young, she met Derek John Westwood and they got married in 1962 because that's just how things were. You just met someone and you got married to him. Absolutely. and But got the good name from it. I agree. I do think it's better than Vivian Swire. It's funny that she kept that for the rest of her career. People like that, though. They often will stick with just their first married name, even if the guy's long gone, especially if it sounds good. Anywho, they quickly have a son called Ben. Vivian Westwood becomes a primary school teacher, which is quite unexpected. And she moved just down the road from her parents, so everything's set for her to have the most normal possible life. It just doesn't sound what you'd imagine Vivian Westwood to have a beginning like. Well, this is like before her awakening. Absolutely. But of course, she wasn't destined for a normal life, and everything was about to change when she met Malcolm McLaren in 1965, when she was still just 24. He wasn't McLaren either at the time. I can't remember his actual surname. Oh, do you know what? I, I thought I read that actually that was his legal name. And yeah, he used another like pseudonym for ages. And he's ended up being called Malcolm McLaren, pretty much against his own wishes because of his connection with the Vivian Westwood story. Interesting. Well, they met at a place called the Railway Hotel in Harrow, where she was a hat check girl. That's brilliant. I love anyone who's a hat check girl. It I sounds know, so 1950s. Doesn't it? Well, yeah, we're only in 65. McLaren was a mod, which was a big uh, sort of trend at the time for where you could look. It's quite hard to describe the haircut. It's very sort of flat. <laughs> Just a very flat, like the sort of development of the Beatles look. Like a bowl maybe. cut, kind of. Not, qu- not quite. Like, have you ever seen Paul Weller? He has yes. a mod haircut. Okay, okay great. Yeah. And they went around on Vespa scooters. Yeah, it was yeah. still a bit of a look. McLaren was a friend of Vivian's brother. So that's how they met. And uh, McLaren and the brother were studying at Harrow Art School. McLaren was very artistic and dangerous and exciting. 
Meanwhile, Vivian was becoming an adult, and she knew that she wanted nothing like the mediocrity that she'd experienced thus far. No shade on having a nice life as a school teacher. <laughs> but Vivian wasn't exactly a conventional person. To say the least. So she promptly left her husband, Derek, saying he was too kind to me. And she went to live in her brother's flat share, where Malcolm lived, and she took her little son with her. That was more of a conventional setup, but oh, maybe not conventional, but a bit more common of a setup back then. Like, I think there's a lot of pressure now that when people have a child, they live in their kind of like two up, two down house of their own owning. They're like, all young students. I mean, a flat share situation is... But with a child, I mean. Oh, I see. You, like, I just think that's something you wouldn't hear about anymore. But I've certainly got friends who grew up in like shared houses. From what I've read, though, Malcolm and Vivian didn't exactly have a passionate and respectful start to their romance. It's the worst. It's not. It, I find this really gross. So the story of how they got together, uh, at least according to Vivian, is just not the height of romance. Malcolm was ill with a fever and he was living in this super bare room, which is also his art studio, supposedly. Uh, so Vivian let him sleep off his fever in her bed rather than sleeping in a bare mattress on the floor. In her words, that was how we ended up having sex. I didn't want Malcolm at first, but I did in fact end up getting pregnant by him. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but here's the thing. I felt, you see, that somehow I'd been so kind to him that maybe he'd got the wrong idea and it was my fault and that somehow I'd misled him, led him on without knowing. So I had to get involved with him and they were together for a really long time. I think it sounds partly like she retroactively making this story sound like, oh, I never even liked him anyway. But I can well imagine it, to be honest. It just ends up happening. It sounds like they both are retrofitting their experience from meeting. Uh, yes. So his version is that he pretended to be ill to see what being in a woman's bed was like, especially a woman who was a school teacher and older than him. Bear in mind, he was 19 years old at this point. So I suppose any excuse, and he was a virgin, so any excuse would have been fine for him. But nevertheless, having a de facto wife and kid at the age of 19 wasn't what Malcolm McLaren was after. But they did have a strong connection and they even started to work together when she was making jewellery and then selling it in Portobello Market in West London. McLaren lived like a true student and was obsessed with all things fashionable and trendy. He began influencing Vivian and her look shifted away from the 1960s dolly girl look, which I think... You know, it's like swoopy little hair with a hairband and a mini skirt yeah, and everything very, very neat. Very 60s. Yeah, girly and cute. He had anarchist leanings and was obviously very intense, all of which intrigued Vivian, who was, as we said, kind of allergic to mediocrity. So in the midst of all this um, interesting artistic ideas and this creative connection, she did fall pregnant with her second child. And McLaren responded mainly with fear that his student party lifestyle would be cut short. So he goes crying to his grandmother, Rose, who is a practical woman with a big personality. I quite like the sound of her, who had already shepherded his mum through a career as a sort of like high class courtesan. Rose gave Vivian money to go and have an illegal abortion because this is 1967. So it's still illegal in the UK. She took the money. Uh, but when she went to the back alley clinic on Harley Street, she changed her mind. And she just turned around and went to buy herself a cashmere sweater and a matching piece of turquoise fabric. She sewed a little suit from it and she kept the pregnancy. And that's the point where she decided to really commit to her relationship with Malcolm. 
I like that. I like her deciding, nope. And then in a way, going to find her fashion career kind of symbolically. Yeah, I mean, I'm just like mega in favour of choice. And that's just like the choice she made. And it just shows that you can work really hard. You don't have to like not have children if that's what you want to have and she like become a success. Obviously, though, McLaren wasn't happy with this. And he actually took a while to even see his new son, who was named Joseph. And McLaren didn't want Joseph to have his surname. And Vivian didn't want to use her married name or her maternal name for some reason. So he became Joseph Corre, which was actually Grandmother Rose's maiden name. I'm not sure whether there is any deliberate irony in that choice, considering if it was up to her, he wouldn't exist. I think it was a little bit of a joke. Joseph Corre seems quite laid back about all of this backstory from his accounts, and he ended up becoming the head of the lingerie brand Agent Provocateur, so he's not that damaged by the whole affair. Well, his millions, I'm sure, covered him. But he seems to have still a close relationship with Vivian Westwood, just from the book I read. Oh, yeah, both Ben and Joseph have a good good relationship with their mother. Despite uh, this baby not (laughs) strictly being wanted, certainly not by its father, the couple did stay together, although McLaren was often too busy taking culture to the streets and changing the whole way of life, using culture as a means of making trouble. That was a direct quote from him. (laughs) Yeah, I should do my quotation voice there because I very much do not think that's a good reason to not be present in your child's life and to tell that child that you are not its father. Anyway, so he wasn't uh, that bothered about being involved in Joe's upbringing or being around. When he did come to get Vivian from the hospital, he took her straight to a meeting of the Socialist Workers' Party. And I've got to say, neither of us has birthed a child. But I understand from our friends who have that this isn't the kind of thing you mainly want to do in the immediate aftermath. Or even the immediate year. (laughs) Or necessarily ever, if you aren't into that kind of thing. But like you've literally given birth. This bloke who's the father's just shown up and the first thing he wants to do is socialist workers' party. But obviously this wasn't Vivian's first child and I think they were all a bit more hardy. (laughs) She was relaxed about it. She just the way she tells stories about him is mostly like really quite affectionate. Like she doesn't seem to think this is a traumatizing event. The spark of love or whatever admiration always seems to be there. So Malcolm's idea of activism, it was this situationist art idea, so happenings, basically, that was really big in the 60s. And he did things like giving away free toys in the Selfridges toy department. None of those made them home to his own child, I note. This was meant to be anti-capitalist rather than (laughs) pro-child. You won't be surprised to hear. To get away from life as a dad, he moved into his grandmother's council flat in Clapham, leaving Vivian to move back to her own parents completely overwhelmed at this stage by the responsibility of caring for her two children and working full-time. They offered her their garden shed, apparently, but she decided on a caravan instead. Despite the kind offer of the garden shed, she actually ended up moving to Wales to find somewhere that she could live really cheaply on her benefits. McLaren, meanwhile, was obviously at Grandmother Rose's uh, council flat, and it's really interesting, a bit of colour on Grandmother Rose, that While she was giving this money out, she lived in like a proper council flat in Clapham. It wasn't like she was this kind of wealthy benefactor. Mm. And McLaren carried on being an absolute tool by (laughs) marrying a Turkish French student, uh, not for love, but in exchange for the tidy sum of uh, £50. Which in the book I read was as low as £30 in some accounts. Like It's pathetic amounts of money, even for the time. It was for, obviously, she needed a visa. So it was a transaction. And he used this money to make a film called Oxford Street, which was all about the absurdities of consumerism and fashion. Whilst this marriage gave McLaren only a few pounds, it actually then cost Grandmother Rose £2,000 to secure a divorce. Despite the separation between Vivian and McLaren, they still did see a lot of each other. 
and eventually Vivian moved back down to London to a flat McLaren had secured in Clapham, which was like a 1930s tiny ex-council flat. A bit like the one we're sitting in right now. (laughs) (laughs) But this one was in Nightingale Lane in Clapham, South London. And this flat would become Vivian's home for the next 30 years. So even through her massive fame, she was still in this little council flat in South London. She enrolled in further teacher training and generally looked after making money so that she could pay the bills. Not that McLaren was interested. He was too busy worrying about being artistic and important. I mean, I completely agree that he's a pretentious arse. That comes across so clearly in the story. But the theories and ideas that he's learning about at film school and from his artist mates, they inspire some very cool Westwood looks and they get her like engine of creativity started. So I'm going to throw him a little bone there. Yeah, he does have some bone of it. <laughs> but by the end of the 1960s, McLaren and Westwood were settled in South London, but still at each other's throats most of the time. And they were about to embark on an adventure that would see them instrumental in changing the culture and scene of London from the played out hippie era to the energy of punk. London at the end of the 1960s was no longer reeling from World War II and some of the conservative ideologies were making way for a more liberal society and a relaxed outlook. The hippie free love and harmony was popular and trendy but people like McLaren and Westwood hated anything that looked mainstream. They rebelled against the hippie aesthetic. I can't imagine Vivian Westwood as a hippie. I'm just really trying to imagine her in like trailing chiffon and with really long hair. And they they were inspired more by a kind of severe 1950s teddy boy style. So that's quite like a classic 1950s like pompadour hair and that kind of thing. Vivian says that Malcolm would be wearing a knitted tie and a Czech Viella shirt. That's an old fashioned kind of English brand. And corduroy trousers looking like a smart art student. Sounds a bit dusty. And I remember, this is to her, I was into a navy look with pearls. So really conservative, but it's meant to be subversive, I think. In 1971, this is a big moment, Vivian cuts her hair to this like choppy, uneven, peroxided blonde look. It's like gelled up onto her head. Try and imagine it. This is a look that we now see as quintessentially punk, but back then would have been completely new and controversial. And a hairdresser called Simon Barker, who was around at the time, says David Berry copied his Ziggy Stardust look from this look of hers. I'm not surprised. That must have been so out there. It still looks like edgy, that hair. If I saw someone with that haircut now, like a proper 1980s punk haircut, I think that was a strong look. So whilst they were both kind of forward-thinking in their clothes and mentality... They couldn't really change the world from just their flat, and they wanted to be front and centre of all things that were not popular or or hip, but subversive, as you were saying. McLaren thought a decent platform for this would be a shop, so he could sell these rock and roll records and memorabilia that were all about the 1950s kind of rock look. Whilst walking down the King's Road one day, by chance he started a conversation with the shopkeeper of 430 King's Road. The shopkeeper offered up the back of his shop, which was then a retro boutique called Paradise Garage. McLaren pooled all his available money, which included selling things he had, heavy quotes, borrowed from college, and got money from his friends to buy stock for the shop. In November 1971, he opened up his shop in the back room and called that part Let It Rock at Paradise Garage. Within a couple of days, the shopkeeper Bradley Mendelssohn had promptly disappeared, leaving McLaren to have the run of the whole place. When the owner of the shop returned from his honeymoon a few weeks later, he walked in to find a group of complete strangers there that he had no idea what they were doing there. Reasonably enough, he offered that they could stay if they paid the weekly rent of £40, to which McLaren replied, No. 
He thought being a squatter was a better idea, as even if the guy wanted to evict him, then it would take months, by which point they would have made a tidy sum of money rent-free. But McLaren underestimated this landlord, who changed the locks and threw their stock out onto the streets. I think this actually really upset them, obviously, even though they were anarchists. I think they were really upset by all of their stuff being thrown out. Who wouldn't? I mean, when people talk about anarchy, they usually don't mean things happening to To them. them. (laughs) So in a very anti-anarchist move, McLaren and Vivian went to a lawyer in the city who managed to negotiate a settlement for them both. And then through gritted teeth, the owner allowed them to return and they were back in business, this time for the whole shop though they did keep some of that anarchist spirit alive in that they didn't pay their lawyer for several years. It was actually Vivian's mum, Dora, who uh, lent them the £100 they needed for the shop deposit, and she was the one who insisted they visit the notary and form an actual partnership. Vivian calls this a huge mistake. It probably seemed sensible at the time, but it tied her and Malcolm together legally, like long past the point where Vivian Westwood was a massive deal, you know, and, and he wasn't also around and they had no creative partnership anymore. So we should probably describe the King's Road a little bit. These days, it's like a really fancy, quite a long road full of mainly kind of chain fashion shops yeah, and things like that. It's in it's in West London, kind of Chelsea area. So made in Chelsea and that kind of thing. Is oh yeah, absolutely. King's road. They go to bars and things along the King's Road. But it, it was originally a private road for the King, which is obviously why it's called King's Road. Hmm. And their shop, which was at 430 King's Road was right down the end. So it's not kind of close to Sloane Square, which is at the other end of King's Road. Yeah. And they decided to open a Teddy Boy Emporium. So they had like jukeboxes and pictures of 1950s stars on the walls. And when I was reading that, it kind of sounded a bit like a pastiche of an American diner. But it really wasn't anything like that. It was about kind of 1950s working class British rock with the idea being to look as different as possible from the hippie trend and reviving the kind of old school look. The shop became a fashionable meeting place for the underground scene of the early 70s. It really stood out against the hippie contingent and their old school working class visuals seemed fresh. It sounds like Viv's look was also on fire. Gene Krell was a man who ran another shop near them called Granny Takes a Trip. I think it's a famous shop as well. He said, her attitude, her body language, her look, it took your breath away. Their success in the shop wasn't quite mirrored in their personal life. Whilst it gave McLaren another excuse to be less responsible and continued to be an absent father, he at the same time let poor grandmother Rose, who we were talking about earlier, die alone in her flat and she wasn't found for days oh don't no this kind of thing pulls my heartstrings way too much making it worse their home in nightingale lane was literally a couple of minutes from her oh no thanks that you get for having an anarchist son well yeah (laughs) the, the women in his life suffered frankly so vivian worked at the shop when she wasn't teaching and trying to make ends meet in their home When stock at Let It Rock, so the records and things, ran low, she was drafted into making some clothes for them to sell. Rather than this being just another job she had to do to please McLaren and keep money coming in, she started to develop a real artistry for copying the Teddy Boy styles, sourcing cool materials and working with an East End tailor to create really amazing things. The clothes she made were not cheap knockoffs. People noted that her retro pieces were being pristinely restored, all done with love and attention and all done by hand by her. Unlike the conventional life that she resented, she described fashion as a baby I picked up and never put down. It's quite sweet that she uses that as an image because she's quite a devoted mother. 
McLaren thought he was the brainchild of all of this, and you won't find any credit being given to Vivian at the time. She was just a nameless partner in the shop, producing these clothes from her flat. When he wasn't taking all the credit, he was generally careless and opened the shop whenever he liked or whatever time suited him, and did stuff like let his friends sleep on the floor. It is quite funny, we're describing him as if he should be this stand-up guy, and he's literally like a pillar of punk. And I think we might be judging him by the wrong criteria here. Perhaps. He was a clever guy still, and he did stuff like tell customers that some of the uh, items weren't actually for sale to kind of make it sound exclusive. The main appeal for Malcolm of the shop was being involved in the scene, and he loved the perks of running a place which attracted people from the rock and roll milieu. He much preferred hanging out with the cool rockers in the bars and clubs than being a shopkeeper. (laughs) Doesn't surprise me at all. He did have a flair for decor, and he really drove the direction of the shop's interior design while Vivian was off making the clothes, and his network of laddie friends were the shop's first customers, so I want to give him his dues, basically. Despite the growing success of the shop, both commercially and in the media, after two years of trading, McLaren and Westwood grew bored of copying the kind of 1950s rockabilly style, and they wanted to turn away from the less fashionable tendencies of the Teddy Boy conservative manifesto. And so they shut up shop, and they then opened a few months later with the snappy title, Too Fast to Live, Too Young to Die, which was a name actually a Saturday shop assistant thought up and was a nod to James Dean, who was the quintessential rebel without a cause. The shops fit out and its stock become to invoke a kind of biker's paradise, so it was all leathers and motorcycle memorabilia. And the clothes were deliberately unconventional, and they would kind of be what we would now think of as fetish wear, um, so kind of leather harnesses and that kind of thing. But back then, that kind of connection wouldn't entirely have existed, that sexual fetish connection with leathers. As well as selling leathers, the shop was ahead of the curve in designing t-shirts with slogans on them. Can you believe they basically invented that? It's, it's crazy, isn't it? They're so commonplace nowadays. Yes, and it's a little bit of a Devil Wears Prada moment because you think, oh, well, obviously someone did that. But it kind of came from a, an, an art school theory of letterism, which is just putting letters on things, basically. But, you know, like, sometimes we kind of want to pretend that simple things like that it's just obvious, but they had to be inspired by a new idea at some stage. Yeah, and if you think of the evolution of the look, 50s, you know, buttoned up shirts, 60s, it was still kind of like, you know, even, you, even if you were a hippie, you'd wear a shirt. Absolutely. So now moving into kind of the late 70s, wearing a t-shirt, a man or a woman, it's a unisex garment. Yes, and Westwood called it anti-fashion at its simplest, which I find very interesting. The t-shirt designs were deliberately shocking and they attracted a younger, more rebellious buyer. For example, they would have words like perv or rock in big letters with the t-shirts customized with zips over the nipples or things like cut out plastic windows on them westwood even made one design using real chicken bones which she collected from a local restaurant and pinned onto a t-shirt to spell out rock this became highly collectible as you can imagine it's a pretty amazing object uh, alice cooper the well-known musician bought one and today originals are worth thousands of pounds can you imagine the health and safety fiasco now if someone put like chicken bones from morley's chicken shop or whatever on a t-shirt sell them in h&m h&m for five pounds 99 the shop's success propelled the duo into the paris and new york rock and fashion scene vivian shook off the vestiges of her school teacher persona and began to join mclaren on nights out and on the scene partly to keep an eye on him and partly because she was enjoying the cool circles that McLaren was part of. And whilst their relationship wasn't one of mutual trust and respect, she remained in awe of McLaren. He had so many ideas and he wasn't tethered to the mundanities of real life. 
McLaren's favourite pastime was being a rebel, socialising with fashionable friends and living his life with no consequences. Contemporaries don't recall the couple being sentimental or loving towards each other, but rather they appeared as a strong, ambitious pair. Meanwhile, Vivian's two young boys, barely ten, were carted between a zero-rules kind of household and then various boarding schools, swapping all the time because they never actually paid the fees for the boarding schools. Vivian did love her kids, and they fiercely loved her back, but she didn't feel that conventional motherhood was either good for her or them. Over time, her previous shyness in the shop evaporated as she became more involved in the scene and the ideology of anarchism. She had powerful opinions to share. She became fiercely loyal to her political causes, and all the shops of the King's Road which catered for the dandies and the hippies were her enemies. Westwood's battle armour was her clothes and her look, whilst Malcolm just looked, like in the words of their contemporaries, a boring rockabilly guy. You put that in just because you want to slag him off. I just wanted to highlight the fact that her look is evolving, and his is remaining still really stilted. Agreed, and also she's becoming political. I think prior to this, it seems like she was doing everything she could to keep body and soul together, and we've... We've said that he was a really big driving force behind the ideology, but clearly she was just an intrinsically different, quirky, to put it mildly, person. Meanwhile, zooming out a bit, in 1974, where we are now, the economy in London and Britain was depressed and the government was leaderless. The swinging 60s had passed and basic liberalism was no longer novel, meaning that boundaries could begin to be pushed. McLaren's love of disorder and being ahead of what was fashionable played into this spirit. In the summer of 1974, the shop was once again rebranded, this time simply the word sex. The signage was brazen and in your face, and was basically big, pink PVC letters on the shop fronts dispelling out sex. I mean, Google it. It looks so weird. How are you going to Google that? Sex shop. No, just Sex, Kings Road, McLaren, Westwood. I've had to Google some dark things for this for this particular podcast. It, it looks kind of funky. It looks a bit like pop arty. It's great. And then naked mannequins were piled on top of one another in the windows. This all sounds quite fun and tongue-in-cheek, but there were also some less salubrious elements to it. Yeah, all. I mean, I don't think being fun or tongue-in-cheek was really the intention. I think the only stated goal is to offend and to smash things up. That is what punk is. Uh, Vivian's biographer Ian Kelly whose book I read she did it um, officially in collaboration with him so my version of facts might be quite like Viv favouring but he suggests that their t-shirt with like a naked child on it smoking a cigarette is one of the few things that's actually more shocking now than it was at the time so it kind of helps to think of what was considered shocking then the thing I find really hard looking back at photos and clips of punk artists is they're wearing swastika armbands like now I think that just looks so clumsy and juvenile as a way to make a statement. But the only goal they had was to shock. It's really interesting to think about the things that shock our sensibilities, depending on what time we were in. Mm. Because saying something brazen like sex, which wouldn't have been said then, mm. probably was, as you said, far, far more shocking than an image of a naked child smoking a cigarette, which is just mad. Yeah, I also think now that if you have one opinion, let's say that we should be more liberated about sex and sexual identity, for example, that we now expect that you'll have these other matching lefty opinions. And this is when opinions like this were being formed. People were just testing things out. They're not saying that they're Nazis. We would find that a bad thing to do now. I'm not saying it was a good thing to do then. But I, I just think it's pointless trying to judge this imagery by the standards of today. Agreed. So their ethos was 
Pornography is the laughter of the bathroom of your mind. The whole thing was basically designed to annoy English sensibilities, and magazines joked that the readers should avert their eyes when passing 430 Kings Road. Many contemporaries say that the focus on sex wasn't because Malcolm and Vivian had a particularly adventurous sex life. In fact, most people remember McLaren as being a bit repressed and old-fashioned when it came to sex. Instead, they used pornography and deviance because it celebrated a subculture that was ordinarily kept hidden away. Their clothes, particularly the t-shirts, were for the rebels and the renegades to wear. It was the brave that had admission. Viv's son Ben remembers her designing one t-shirt in particular called, prepare yourself, Piss Marilyn, which I'm just not going to describe it. But you can have a guess at what it involves. Do you know what you even can't it's worse than what you think anyway he's he's little and he says to her mum i'm confused do you like her or not and vivian says magnificently yeah it's not about that i'm just trying to shock people by putting piss on so there's an insight into her creative process meanwhile mclaren was never satisfied and he had grown bored of england moving to new york forever well that's what he said this allowed vivian to reign in london She continued to move in these cultural circles, semi-deliberately picking up useful contacts along the way and ramping up her reputation and street cred. She could finally live her life unburdened by impressing Malcolm, and she had no time for a conventional life. For example, there was a story told by a young playwright who Vivian took out on a date, and by this time she was in her mid-30s and he was, at the time, in his early 20s. Mid-date, she just got bored of him and instead struck up a conversation with a nearby sailor, taking him home instead. She also did things like ban people from the shop on a whim. And one particularly big punk character um, and a frenemy of Vivian called Pamela Rook, who would go on to become this massive icon, worked in the shop. And one night, they went to a Brian Ferry concert at the punk haven The Roxy Music in Covent Garden. When the backing dancers for Brian Ferry came on, all scantily dressed, Vivian made a huge scene that Ferry was being sexist, and Vivian was promptly ejected from the club. But Pamela stayed, and Vivian saw this as a huge betrayal, and she promptly fired Pamela, reportedly pointing to the shop door and saying, Go with the flow, and it's going that way. It's not that Westwood identified necessarily as a feminist. Well, I was going to say, I'm quite surprised that she was that bothered about scantily clad women on stage. In fact, it kind of seems like women for her were either helpless drones or threats to her attention. Her sexual designs weren't really intended to reclaim female sexuality. Not that she minded that as a byproduct. It was rather her main goal was to shock and subvert. McLaren inevitably turned back up in London and carried on like nothing had happened. He obviously loved a publicity stunt, as we've said, and nothing was off limits to him, or at least nothing was off limits if other people could be persuaded to carry them out. There was one incident where he drummed up a rumour that a notorious rapist brought his mask that he used to like do crimes from their shop. News of this reached Scotland Yard, who went down to the shop to investigate. McLaren publicised it and began selling a mask and t-shirt with the word rapist on it. And this led to a surge in sales. But this is actually the one thing that Westwood herself says she regrets doing. Like everything else was part of it. This isn't punk, is it? It's just he was it wanted to be... sell a few extra grim. Well, it, it would be punk if he wasn't profiting so clearly from it. That's exactly what I mean. He's not doing it just to smash things up. It does point towards what McLaren would say was the justification, which was a protest against the moral majority, although it wouldn't be much comfort to anybody who was affected, obviously. 
It will come as no surprise that these sexually explicit and provocative t-shirts were getting people arrested and prosecuted for wearing them out in public. For example, uh, the author of The King's Road book that I read by Max Deschanet said that on the way to the shop, he was accosted by so many people and nearly beaten up just for wearing his, these clothes. But to Vivian and McLaren, the more arrests and the more public outcry, the better. Their methods were appealing not just to their own private agenda, but also were getting the attention of a lot of young Londoners in the mid-1970s. And this set the scene perfectly for McLaren's crowning achievement, you might say, which was managing the archetypal punk band, the Sex Pistols. So how did punk begin? It's appropriate that the origins of the punk movement cannot be commonly agreed upon. I mean, why would a bunch of young anarchists breaking the mould collectively agree upon something for the benefit of future history podcasters? New York and the eponymous magazine Punk take a lot of the credit. Just a little footnote, in our gin episode, you told me that prostitutes were called punks back then, and we didn't know if there was any connection, but there you go. But so do the few hundred teenagers in the mid-1970s who would congregate around the King's Road in London. Punks in New York and Paris were a bit more cerebral and political, but punk in London was more about dressing up and annoying the majority. For most of the London punk scene, their actions were not political, it was about mayhem and fun, basically. I think because of the British stiff upper lip, yeah. it must be so much more enjoyable to like poke the bear Absolutely. than maybe New York and Paris. So the Sex Pistols were made up of four young Londoners and they were formed with the help of McLaren. The Sex Pistols themselves would go on to say that McLaren actually overplayed his involvement with the band. But what can't be denied is Vivian's career was built on punk. Critic Tony Parsons said, The clothes made the music seem more radical than it really was. So I think that's a little bit rough on the movement because punk music, it is a pretty radical departure from what music even meant up to that point. I think rejecting harmony, melody, beauty, etc. is quite a radical act. And I mean, the music forms the basis of that. And other radical acts can spring up as a result of punk. So maybe he means that the radical work had already been done by the actual anarchist artists who went before... I think it was more that punk allowed the music and fashion to kind of partner up together for the first time. And it was from that which Vivian flourished. She said, up until the Sex Pistols and punk rock, I'd never thought of myself as a designer. And McLaren's main contribution was monetizing and promoting the collaboration of Vivian's clothes and the Sex Pistols music with things like Anarchy in the UK and God Save the Queen printed on t-shirts that the band would wear and obviously from Vivian's designs. The clothes sold the records and vice versa. The market for discontent and dissatisfaction among young Londoners was booming. This was fuelled by the economic recession, which was the worst since the 1930s. And the working class and uneducated youth were the hardest hit by this. And it's no surprise that in this context, we have things like the Notting Hill riots in 1976, which we talked about in our Notting Hill episode. It's very interconnected with other things this episode. I was just thinking when you said about her finally feeling like a designer because up to this point she's maybe seen herself as a seamstress and we talked about that way back in episode two when we did the birth of British Vogue and how up to that point there really hadn't been a fashion designer as a job everyone had just been a clothes maker Mm. so anyway McLaren is managing the sex pistols and at this point Vivian and him are more or less separated but their dysfunctional relationship was just their version of normal Vivian began to dress the Sex Pistols in her own designs, with McLaren secretly deducting the cost from the band's royalties. I'm sure they loved that when they found out. And they would often hang out or model clothes for the shop, the band members, that is. There's loads of them as well. You think, oh, a band has four members, but 
when I watched their famous interview, it was like 12 of them. Really? The band's first gig was at St. Martin's College of Art and shortly afterward in Bromley in South London. And that made the Bromley contingent, which is like a massive punk set. Is it? I do not think of Bromley as being a there very punk area. They soon developed hardcore fans. Sex Pistols fans were buying Vivian's clothes, but not all of them could afford them, so they began to copy her designs, which she was actually only too happy about because in turn that inspired her. She wasn't as consumerist as McLaren was trying to make a buck. She liked the whole fact that all of this punk artistry was eating itself and making new things. To this day, she'll say, like, don't buy my clothes. She says, like, buy one thing that you like. Don't buy loads of my stuff. I think that's a pretty bold statement to make. So by 1976, McLaren had set up his own music company on Denmark Street in central London, which was and still is today known as Tin Pan Alley because of its associations with the music business. McLaren signed up the Sex Pistols and he took full advantage, knowing that they wouldn't read the contract, and so he took 25% of their earnings. By this point, Viv had truly transformed from being a timid schoolteacher who would do things like let people try on the clothes in the shop without them buying them, to by 1976 lecturing anybody who wanted to buy clothes and then interrogating them about their political and emotional reason for buying something. They had to now be worthy in her eyes. Her style was dubbed by her as confrontational dressing. She worked really hard at her designs and needed things to be fresh and perfect. She had real skill and vision, but she also made sure her clothes could be worn. For example, accompanying a friend to hospital, one of the nurses there asked her how she could move in these bondage trousers she was wearing. And Vivian's reply? To cartwheel down the hall. In December of 1976, with some commercial success and with the punk movement gaining traction, Viv and Malcolm decided to rebrand their shop yet again as Seditionaries, and they refitted the whole store. The idea was to make the shop look as unappealing to enter from the outside as possible, meaning only brave people would be allowed entry. The clothes and signage stated Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood Seditionaries, personal collection. When some football hooligans smashed their opaque windows, the front was boarded up, and they didn't care less about this because it made it look even worse. Inside was surreal and deliberately unapproachable, with floor-to-ceiling photos of Dresden in ruins. This sounds like an unpleasant shopping experience, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's not the kind of current King's Road Oh my god, you and I would A, not be able to find it, B, see it and be like, well, it can't be that. And then if we did manage to find our way inside, we'd just be scared. The shop became the unofficial headquarters for all things London punk. Appropriately enough, lots of the merchandise was stolen by the people who did manage to get inside because they had no money and couldn't afford the actually quite high prices. The shop assistants who worked there couldn't possibly care about something as trivial as shoplifting. They were there to look amazing. It wasn't like there were any books or stock taking to go by either. In their mind, if you were brave enough to steal it, then you had to be brave enough to wear it. The shop assistants actually quite an interesting bunch themselves and they included Bella Freud who went on to become quite a different sort of fashion designer and Chrissy Hind from The Pretenders. So for those people that could find the shop and buy something or steal something they didn't actually care what they looked like to the outside world and there's one quote from a punk girl who just said punks just want to be hated. Wearing a swastika didn't mean that they were fascist it meant that they wanted to be reviled. And photos from the time showed these punks as being like surly and sneering. But conversely, all the photographs of Vivian from the time show her smiling and gleeful. She was having fun with all this chaos. McLaren was off touring with the Sex Pistols. Vivian, meanwhile, is focusing on design in her little council flat, making these amazing clothes. 
but she's also becoming more political and she wanted her designs to prompt people to take action. In fact, the author of the biography I read, which was by Jane Mulliver, who was a sometime friend of Vivian and then a denounced biographer. So as you said earlier, maybe her view was slightly tainted in the other way. She says, Vivian dissents in order to reinvent. With Vivian's political focus sharpening, McLaren and Vivian's ideologies began to distance, which was adding another nail in the coffin of their codependent relationship. Malcolm wanted to cash in, but Vivian wanted to rebel and fight against the powers that be. She didn't care about McLaren's Sex Pistols publicity stunts and refused to get involved in things that he tried to get her to do, like set fire to the Beatles waxworks in Madame Tussauds. But the band were beginning to become mainstream famous, both from these kind of publicity stunts reported in the papers and also this contingent of diehard fans. The Sex Pistols' reputation really crystallised when they had a row on air in an interview with Bill Grundy on primetime TV where they repeatedly dropped the F-bomb. The press reported this with outrage. The Daily Mirror went with the headline, The Filth and the Fury. It slated the bad language as the filthiest ever heard on British television and then printed a full transcript. It's genuinely so awkward to watch. It's the most cringe thing I think I've ever seen in my life. Yes, I'm not exaggerating. Because the host asks them to do something shocking and they sort of mill around a bit and then they're like the f word oh it's it's not good yet another swastika armband makes an appearance i know that's the first place i saw it and i was like why i mean how do they get on national television i can barely articulate what a deeply cringe watching experience it is you just have to do it for yourself it's on youtube the best reaction though i've read was a 47-year-old lorry driver who was so offended that he kicked his television in saying, I can swear as well as anyone, but I don't want this kind of muck coming into my home at tea time. Who is that impression of? (laughs) Your everyday... Your everyday 47-year-old lorry driver. (laughs) And that was just the beginning of the Sex Pistols antics. McLaren was thrilled. The band's infamy only grew and grew with God Save the Queen being released by one Richard Branson, in fact, after their previous record company dropped them, and it became a huge commercial success. Big pop hit. It was 1977 and the so-called Summer of Hate. The Queen was having her Silver Jubilee and the cover of God Save the Queen featured a picture of said Queen with a safety pin through her lip. Imagine what, like a bombshell of controversy that would have been at the time. Absolutely. And the public were either on the side of the royalty, fiercely against this punk movement, or they were on the side of this new, progressive form of anarchism. I bet it was about a ratio of 99% of people on the side of the Queen and 1% on the side of the anarchists. And Vivian was right in the centre of the furore. And whilst she had little to do with the band, other than them wearing the odd piece of her clothing... And they were hardly friends. She managed to get attention by doing things like nearly knocking out a young fan because he took her place at the front of a gig. But the brightest lights fade fast, and the Sex Pistols couldn't keep up with their own momentum of destruction. Band member Sid Vicious became addicted to heroin and famously went on to kill his wife Nancy, and then later himself. With this, the group disbanded, and the watershed moment of punk in London going from the underground few to the mainstream was complete. McLaren, as a result of all of this, was vilified by the press, and no longer having a band to promote, he fled to Paris to go find a new project. Meanwhile, the clothes were actually getting attention as the punk uniform, with the Sex Pistols having been featured in Vogue, amazingly. McLaren did not want the praising attention of the mainstream fashion media, so Vivian went behind his back and met Grace Coddington. 
The pistol's demise and the sun setting on the punk era didn't stop Vivian. She was just getting started, in fact. As the 1970s ended, the King's Road shop shut its door, readying itself to rebrand for the 80s. And the next incarnation, called The World's End, which was more of a kind of old curiosity shop than a punk paradise, is still today run under that name by the Westwood family. The World's End was also the name of Vivian Westwood's first catwalk show in 1981, this time catering for the pirate look. McLaren and Vivian saw the dawning of the new romantic movement, and Malcolm thought he could repeat the success of the Sex Pistols by grouping music and fashion, but this time for the 1980s. He met Adamant and helped invent this kind of pirate Red Indian costume, only for him then to fire Adamant and create a new group called Bow Wow Wow. While McLaren was busying himself with the new band, Vivian went to work designing. She now had almost a decade of experience of making clothes and her vision was clear. She wanted to up the ante and have her designs be taken seriously by the fashion world. So she had her first catwalk show. Rather than have the clothes support the band, she now couldn't care less about the band. She wanted her designs to stand on their own two feet. By 1981, the division between McLaren and Vivian's ideologies was firmly split. And with no love or genuine companionship left between them, they split up for good. From being somewhat in McLaren's shadow during the punk movement, the 80s and beyond would tell a different story for Vivian Westwood. She was embraced by the fashion elite, and her first pirate-themed collection got a four-page feature in Vogue, beginning her journey to become a fashion icon and powerhouse. On the other hand, McLaren's band Bow Wow Wow, their biggest success was the cover of the 1965 song I Want Candy. Carlo Di Mario, the future CEO of the Vivian Westwood Company, said, Vivian, in those days, she was like a grenade with the pin pulled. Any moment now, Vivian was about to blow right up. Vivian Westwood, the woman and the brand, is still going strong in 2018, and is perhaps as much an anti-capitalist and activist figure as she ever was. Her publicity-seeking antics throughout the 80s, 90s and 2000s are legendary. Permit me to make a strange connection here, but I didn't really get punk or I didn't appreciate it as a movement until I started to really understand what things were like for women before punk came along. I was reading Bleak House by Charles Dickens, and believe me, I'm going to get somewhere with this, and becoming increasingly frustrated with the endless daintiness and self-abnegation of the main character, Esther Summerson. I was like, stick up for yourself, Esther. Then it struck me that what punk offered women was an alternative to this pretty feminine image of womanhood that had been offered for time immemorial as the only acceptable way to be. The look of punk was unisex. It was tough and confrontational. It's still radical to reject those beauty norms, but at the time it was sensational, really. And also, punk was the first time that weirdos were being really celebrated en masse. If you were a loner, you weren't mainstream, then you had, for the first time, really something to latch on to and somewhere to go. If you were in the King's Road in the 1970s, you may have felt free for the first time being amongst others who weren't accepted. I've got a a quote from Jean Krell from Granny Takes a Trip, who we mentioned earlier, who gives good quotes. And he was talking about some of the customers of the World's End who were exactly as you say. He said the majority of the kids that came in were not frankly terribly attractive. They were kind of misfits. Very often they had weight problems. Some had physical deformities. We had a boy come in with no feet. He had these black leather half legs covered in gold studs. Fabulous sounding, by the way. That kid came out of Vivian's shop and he felt special and cool and accepted. 
One of the preeminent virtues of Punk and of Vivian is that she became an enabler and Punk demanded acceptance. People are always dismissive of what we did and they just look at it as being sort of one-dimensional and hateful. But you know, for a kid to come in like that with no feet and lose his inhibitions and leave that shop feeling that he was a part of something that was more worldly and more universal, that's a very, very rare opportunity that's presented to us. And Vivian knew that. To make someone feel as relevant or as significant as anyone who walks this earth, that's a rare and cherished gift. Punk could do that. Fashion can do that. Rarely. Vivian does it always. And you might find that a very optimistic gloss on what punk had to offer. But its aesthetic is still a relevant one that you'll see used by marginalised groups to this day. Whilst Krell's ideas about disabilities may sound a bit dated, he's describing the 1970s and things were different. I think in our um, intention to include everyone in every possible group in the modern day, we can forget that not everyone will ever feel comfortable in a brightly lit, polished version of this world. Punk was a place where you could be angry and ugly, and just the possibility of that feels potent in a London that's increasingly dominated by luxury flats and international chains. Vivian Westwood was and is a true original. Thank you for listening to Fierce City, telling the tales of our very favourite city in the world and our home, London. If you like our podcast, then please subscribe or write us a review. You can also email us at londonhistorypodcast at gmail.com. If you just want to get in touch or let us know a topic you'd be interested to hear in, you can equally tweet us at FierceCityPod and a special nod to Josh and Mood who composed our music. Fierce City was written and produced by the two voices you have heard. Thank you for listening. Thank you.